John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, I think you might have seen a little bit of the scripture reading and song twice. I have a couple of technical difficulties doing this a different way than normal. But be that as it may, we've come to the uh, part of the service where you get to listen to me for a little while. Don't think I'll be that long. Our sermon today is really working through our philosophy of missions as a church. And it's been a real privilege of mine to be involved with the foundation of the church, the church plant ministry team, the elders, and now the missions team, and to be able to help craft that. And it's also my privilege to be able to preach through that. I had thought about just uh, reading through it uh, for part of it, but decided that might be a little less exciting. And uh, I tore it back apart and took it point by point to try to preach through it. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, please join me in prayer as I begin my sermon. Father God, I pray that you would work in our hearts right now, Lord, in mine and in the hearts of everyone watching. Lord, it's my desire and my belief that through your Holy Spirit, you want to prompt us today to add something to our work that we're doing on your behalf to grow your kingdom, that you want to prompt us to uh, improve one area of our response to the commands you've given us, that you want to work in our hearts to encourage us to uh, do a little bit better with evangelism, with reaching out to people, with helping those in need. And Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would uh, give me the words to say, that you would take those words and turn them into something that makes sense in the hearts and minds of those listening. Lord, we need your grace every day and now more than ever. And we pray for that, Lord. Pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on a Sunday in 2007, I was sitting in my usual pew in Emmanuel. Those of you who uh, knew me then, and actually a lot of people at Emmanuel then, we kind of sat in the same place week after week. So there I was in my normal pew, and Becca Kula, who was then Becca Taylor, got up to make an announcement about a trip to Haiti. It was going to be in April 2008. And as I'm listening to that announcement, it really struck me that I needed to be on this trip. I don't know why I felt that way. I was assuming it was God prompting me, but you know, wasn't 100% sure at the time. And so after church, I approached Carrie and I said, you know, I really think I'm supposed to go on that trip to Haiti in April 2008. And she said, so go, or something similarly succinct and supportive. So I did, I signed up. I'd never been on a missions trip before, even though I grew up in the church. As a young person, as a teen, my parents never let me go on any of those trips. And, um, you know, through college, I guess, and after college, I just didn't give it much thought anymore. That, that time had kind of gone. It's a different phase of life. But when this opportunity was presented to me, I just felt like I needed to be there. So 
Just like that, six of us headed in April of 2008 down to Haiti for a total of 10 days. And I was outside my comfort zone for sure. I had never traveled outside the US, Canada, or Europe before, all kinds of similar places really. And I didn't know what God had in store for me. I didn't know why he had me going to Haiti. Uh, it was not obvious to me. Now, as I've continued to go over the years, it's become obvious to me, but I certainly didn't know then. The team was five women and me, and although we were a team, I was left to my own devices frequently. The women had a bedroom and a bathroom on the second floor. I was relegated to the first floor all by myself. And if you know me, being by myself is not one of my strong suits. I'm not an introvert. I don't like to be alone. My biggest fear when I went off to college was that I was going to be assigned a single room. So this wasn't certainly my idea of a great time to go and be by myself for large periods of time. So that first night in Haiti, there I am. I'm lying in a metal bunk bed in a concrete room, pitch black, probably about 90 degrees, and something crawls across my body. I was a little freaked out, to say the least, and I decided at that point that wrapping myself in the sheet was not optional, regardless of how hot it was in that room. Well, I fall asleep, and a couple hours later, there's a huge ruckus that starts in the storage room that adjoins my bedroom. There's just a steel door between me and that room, which I don't think is locked. And so I do what any courageous man would do in a foreign land, not knowing anything. I pulled that sheet up over my head like a security blanket and prayed that morning would come quickly. Well, in the morning, I got questioned. You must have heard something. Why didn't you do anything? What were you doing? And turns out that some goats had gotten into the supply room and ransacked everything. And I had zero credibility with the Haitian women that had come to work that morning, wondering why I didn't step in and do something. Well, you can see my trip was off to a great start already. And on our first work day, the women on the trip were going to do medical work down at the clinic. I had nothing I could do there, so I was sent off to do construction projects and to do surveying around the mission. So that very first morning after breakfast, I get picked up in an ATV. I climb in the ATV. I look at the guy that's picking me up. And in the first Creole words I've ever spoken to a Haitian man, I said, Come He said, I'm fine, man. How are you? And I said, wow, your English is really good. And he said, it should be. I'm from Chicago. Well, my pride took a big hit. It wasn't exactly how I imagined things going. So you can see I'm still wondering why I'm there what I'm doing. I'm doing everything wrong. Later on in the trip, we have a visit to some villages. We start to go out and do some village evangelism, as they call it. Really, we're just going out and, and, and meeting with people, playing with kids. We're singing songs and, you know, giving a Bible lesson. We come to this village, a remote village. There's a big tree in the center of the village, kind of, you know, almost like you'd um, think about in a rural place like this. And Everybody starts gathering around the tree, and the, the leader from the mission tells me that I'm going to share a Bible story with the people in a couple minutes. And the problem is, that's the first I'm hearing of this plan. So I'm scrambling to think of what I want to say. Meanwhile, I overhear her telling the translator, if you don't understand what he says, just make something up. So to this day, I have no idea if that story made sense in English or in Creole. I'll get back to that trip and others later on, but... Just wanted to share with you some anecdotes about my first experience with cross-cultural missions. So missions, the question is, what is it? Why do we do it? 
and how do we do it? I think that's what a philosophy of missions tries to answer. I've had the privilege, as I said before, in my time in leadership in the church, uh, having a large role in crafting that statement, and it's certainly my privilege to unpack it for us today. Since that trip that I took in 2008, I've taken more trips, traveled back to Haiti many more times. I enrolled in a seminary uh, for a master's program in global studies and cross-cultural communication, basically. And I've engaged in a lot of cross-cultural relationships, both uh, in family, in professional, and in uh, friendships. That's not to say that I'm now an expert in, in that kind of mission work or that I'm an expert in cross-cultural uh, communication or partnerships. I am far from it. But I have learned a lot over the last 12 or 13 years, and I hope that I'm able to share some of that with you. The other thing I guess I want to say is, as I've read many, many books, if you're open, you know, God will prompt you to one thing or two things that you need to do, that that book is written to teach you, or that experience that you took, there's one thing that you need to take away from it. And certainly my hope and prayer is that, you know, in the next 20 minutes, there's one thing that God speaks to you. So if you have the ability to write something down or take a note on your phone, I would encourage you to do that because from my experience, the next day, a week later, a month later, it's not in our head anymore. And sometimes we're able to kind of put that aside. So as I, as I go, if something pops into your mind that you should be doing, I think you should test that and see if that's God telling you that's what you should do and uh, pray about it and then enter into it. My desire is that as a church, not just through the formal offerings of the missions team, but each member of the church becomes more on mission for God. So the word mission is defined by Merriam-Webster in this way, a specific task with which a person or group is charged. So I think then we could probably define missions as our work in carrying out those tasks with which we as followers of Christ, children of God, have been charged. And I'm going to start with six short points to help us define what we've been charged with. I don't think any of these ideas are going to be new to you if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've been studying scripture. These aren't complicated. They aren't really deep, but they are important. Number one is go and make disciples. First and perhaps most simply, Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. And he follows up in verse 20, telling us to teach them to obey everything that he's commanded us. So my question is, who are you discipling right now? I mean intentionally discipling. Who are you mentoring? If you're discipling someone, that's great. If not, are there names that come to mind of people that are behind you in your spiritual journey? that could benefit from meeting with you on a regular basis, that could benefit from your discipleship, from your mentoring, from your encouragement, from your teaching, from your prayer. Think for a moment of anybody in your life that that might be. Could be somebody in church, a family member. Could really be anybody. The corollary to that question is, who is discipling you right now? If you don't have someone ahead of you on your spiritual journey that's mentoring you, I would encourage you that it's a good idea. In the past, I've had many spiritual mentors. And right now, as I was sitting writing the sermon, I realized that 
I don't, and I've been feeling like I, I need someone that I meet with regularly on a regular basis. So that's something that I'm definitely going to work on. Having someone that's ahead of you in your spiritual journey that you can learn from, that you can be mentored by, is important. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to put in the time? Can you think of somebody that you would love to learn from, somebody that you admire, somebody that you look up to, somebody who you think of as you know, your spiritual father or uncle or uh, older brother, older sister, mother? I say, why not reach out to them and find out if they're willing and available to do that? Worst thing is that they're not, and that's okay. Number two is tell people about Jesus. If no one tells lost people about Jesus, they cannot know and believe. The Apostle Paul lays that out in Romans 10, 9 through 15. You could read that on your own time, but one piece from that, he says, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? It's kind of a simple, almost silly point to make, but when was the last time you told someone about Jesus? Has it been a while? Or maybe when was the last time you thought about telling someone about Jesus, but you chickened out? Maybe that doesn't happen to you, but it does happen to me, I have to admit. I like to be liked by everybody, and I think, what if they reject me? What if they laugh at me? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? And although those feelings probably aren't that likely to be true, they're feelings that I have to work to push down when I'm going to tell someone about Jesus. In Matthew 10.33, Jesus tells us that if we deny him before our friends, he will deny us before his Father. Thankfully, we see in Scripture that this is not a one-and-done kind of rule, that there's no grace here. I mean, we see in Scripture that Peter denied Christ three times, and God used him to be one of the primary leaders of the early church. So for those of you like me who have chickened out when faced with the thought that you want to tell somebody about Jesus, don't despair, but work on changing it, because certainly we should think about the implications of not telling people about Jesus, both for them and for us. The third point is that we should pursue others like God pursues us. We serve a missionary God. He's been pursuing his people since the fall. I think if you've been attending Cornerstone for a while, listening to Jonathan's sermons, you've heard more times than you can count about Genesis 3.15, the first time the gospel is mentioned or foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, from there going forward, if you've been a part of Terry's uh, class, uh, Christian education, you've seen it. God pursues his people. It's not the people so much that are always pursuing God. It's God pursuing his people. We serve a missionary God. We serve a God who pursues sinful fallen and lost people. And we should also pursue sinful, fallen, and lost people. Jesus drives this point home with the trilogy of parables that we're probably all familiar with. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Too often in life, we, I, write people off. We, I, we're not good at following up. We're busy. We let people slip away. We're not good at pursuing people. I'm not sure that pursuing people 
is really a strong part of our culture. But that's what God does, and it's what he wants us to do, to pursue people. Perhaps we're too busy, or perhaps the truth is we don't actually care enough. You know, the world today has so many problems. I prayed about it when we opened the service. You know what they are. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, although thankfully and hopefully it's winding down, but who knows? We certainly have a lot of protests going on right now. There's a lot of people on multiple sides of issues when it comes to racial injustice. We have so many problems just in our local area. And think about people who are also struggling with poverty, with clean water, with loss of jobs, with lack of education, with medical issues, with mental issues. There's so many things in our world that sometimes we become numb to it and we think there's nothing we can do. We can't care about all of them, so we don't care about any of them. But let's think right now, if I tell you to think about a lost sheep, who comes to mind? Who is a lost sheep in your life? Maybe someone you know who's wandered away from the fold, who isn't with their shepherd. Maybe it's someone who's never been in the fold. But who do you think of when I say a lost sheep? I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. A little bit of awkward Facebook silence. If there's someone that came to mind, and for some of you there may not have been, but if someone came to mind, jot that name down. Can you pursue that person? Can you reach out to them? You know, sometimes friendships have to start with one person pursuing the other before they become a true reciprocal friendship. Do you have time to pursue one person? Number four, help those in need. Again, not a complicated thing, something we all know if we've been reading scripture. Christians are exhorted throughout scripture to love and to help everyone, especially those who are less fortunate or forgotten. Proverbs 14.31 tells us this, whoever opposes the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Jesus drives this point home, and like he did the last one with parables. And these parables were generally told to the Pharisees, in this case, uh, the religious people of their day. And Jesus drives this point home with the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 to 37, and the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Now, the parable of the sheep and the goats is probably considered one of the scariest passages in Scripture for those who are Christians. We see in that passage the goats, they're claiming to be people who have cast out demons in his name, that have prophesied in his name. And Jesus replies to them that he never knew them. And he says he never knew them because they didn't take care of the least of these, the people around them who needed food, who needed drink, who needed clothing who needed visitation, who were sick, who were in prison. People who needed friends. And just like the previous point, the needs of the world, as I've said, are overwhelming. We can't figure out how to solve world hunger. We can't seem to figure out how to provide clean water for everyone. Certainly you're sitting there thinking that I personally can't reform the justice system. 
I can't reform the prison system. I can't end racial injustice. I can't parent all the orphans and foster children around the world. I can't cure diseases. There are so many things going on in our world. Maybe one of those resonates with you. Maybe there's something I didn't mention. What part of this broken world grieves your heart? Because the world is broken. It's fallen. It's not as God intended it to be. But Jesus came announcing the coming of his kingdom and his redemption, not just of you as your personal savior, but of the world. And we're supposed to help him bring his kingdom to fulfillment. We're supposed to be working in each part of the broken world to make it a little bit more like God intended it to be. So I'm going to pause for another couple of seconds. What part of this broken world is grieving you the most right now? I know whatever it is, you can't fix it by yourself. But could you think of one thing that you can do? Could you help one person that's struggling with whatever this is? Could you support one organization that already has it their mission to work on that item? Could you volunteer in one place that's already working on that issue? I think for some of us, the answer is we're already doing that, and that's great. But for some of us, the answer is that's miss missing from our personal missions program, our personal effort to be on mission for God. Number five is another simple one, do good. Whether it is word or in deed, scripture is clear that God's people must not avoid their obligation to do good. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's James 4, 17. James is pretty tough on people. James kind of is a straight shooter. Love reading the book of James. So he says, if you see the good you ought to do and you don't do it, that's sin. A sin of omission. Often we think doing good is just the deeds, but I'm going to tell you it's not just the deeds because introducing someone to Jesus Christ is good. Matter of fact, there's no greater thing than can be done for someone if they don't know him. So whether it's in word or in deed, we are called to do the good that's presented before us. And I should point out that really for all of these bullets, but certainly for number five, there are no spectators in God's kingdom. We're all called to be on mission for him. Whether you're a new Christian or old, whether you're young in age or old, whether you've studied theology or you haven't, it doesn't matter. All of us are called to be on mission for God and all of us can make an impact for him, no matter what our limitations are physically or emotionally, we can make an impact for God. And number six, praise God. Another simple one, one that we all know. Human beings were created to glorify God and to declare his praises. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. The very reason God gave us these four special names is that his people would be his witnesses and missionaries in the world. And if you missed it, because I know we're having some technical difficulties displaying those words, here are the four names God gave us. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And because of that, we are to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're called to praise God. Do you give God praise and glory he deserves? It could be for simple things, for the sunrise or the sunset, the flowers, any other beautiful thing in nature, or even the order of nature itself. The breath in your lungs, the fact that you woke up in the morning, the fact that you can walk, the fact that you have food in your refrigerator. There's so many things to give praise to God for. Even if we don't have everything we want, even if we're not as healthy as we want, even if we're not as wealthy as we want, no matter what it is we're missing, there are things we have to praise God for. Perhaps God has done great things in your life. I'd say certainly he has because life itself is a miracle. But whatever it is, whatever God has done for you, is doing for you, continues to do for you, that's your witness. It's uniquely yours. You have a first-hand view of what God has done in your life. And we're called to be a witness to others on behalf of God. So share with others what is worthy of praise, what God has done, what God is doing. Give, him, give them that first-hand experience. Be a witness to God's existence. Be a witness to God's love, to his power, to his majesty. Be a witness to what God has done in your life. Be ready to share your testimony. You know, there's a passage of scripture that says that we should always be ready to give an answer to those who ask us. To do it gently, and I think there's no more gentle thing to do, more, no more undisputable thing to do, no thing that's more accepted really in our society than to give our own personal view, our own witness of what God has done. People can't discount that. They can't say that's not true. We experienced it. So these six points really, I think, are about what we can do, what we should do, what we've been charged to do. And they can be broken down into two main categories. Probably already know what those are, because I've said it multiple times, words and deeds, right? Missions must be a mixture of meeting physical needs and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Christians are commanded to both help those in need and to make disciples. It's not one or the other, it's both. The foremost need for some is physical help. While we all know plenty of people living in opulence, that have a desperate need for a savior. The needs of the poor and the rich go beyond the physical and the psychological. They are spiritual as well. The most effective development plan meets the needs of the whole person. God wants the love of his children to be attractive to the unbeliever. It's that love, that care we have for other people that is supposed to draw others to him. It's our concern for our neighbors that's intended to draw others to Christ. 
It's our love and concern for someone and telling them that God loves them. That's important. However, telling someone that God loves them, telling them that we're concerned for them, will be really hollow to a person who's hungry if those words are not accompanied by food. I think we all understand that. We all have some sense of a hierarchy of needs, and you're not going to worry about things that, you know, are of secondary importance when you don't have food, water, shelter, security, safety, health. These things are primary, and others that I didn't mention. It's our love and concern and our care for others. It's our ability to take care of them that often opens up the door for verbalizing the gospel message. It's not usually the other way around. Usually it's making yourself known to that person, entering into relationship with that person, caring about that person that allows you to verbalize the message and that allows that message that's been verbalized to be heard and to be accepted. Providing for one's physical needs only is equally as incomplete. We need to share the gospel in order to demonstrate real love for their most significant need. Otherwise, it'll remain neglected. Faith and works are not opposing ideas. And back to James, he says this in 2.18. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. I think that's something we can learn from. Now, if I wasn't clear when I unpacked those six points, I want to make sure I'm abundantly clear now that all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, Christians, children of God, we are supposed to be on mission for him. It's not optional. As I said before, there are no spectators in the kingdom of God. This is why we partner with like the Veer Institute and others that talk about our front lines. It's why we studied fruitfulness on the front lines. We are all called to have an impact for God in our neighborhood, in our family, in our workplace, in our school, on our sports teams, etc. Wherever we spend time with people, we're called to have an impact for God. We're called to make that place less like the fallen world and more like God's kingdom. We need to know how to do that. We need to work on that. It's a thing that takes practice. But I think we all know how to build relationships with people. And then we need to leverage those relationships to make a difference in the world. But we need to be careful that we're not becoming friends with people because they're projects or that because we want to get to the ultimate goal of bringing them to Christ. People can sniff that out. They understand that. We need to figure out how we can just care for those around us, to love them, to invest in their lives, to build relationship with them. And we're going to expand now on, really, I'm already expanding now on the how of carrying out missions. We talked about the what. We talked about what we're charged with. But how do we do it? So to paraphrase John Stott, whether sharing with people in words or in deeds, it must be done in humility. When God spoke to us in scripture, he used human language. And when he spoke to us in Christ, he assumed human flesh. In order to reveal himself, he both emptied and humbled himself. That's the model of evangelism that the Bible supplies to us. It's the model of evangelism Christ modeled for us. There is a self-emptying and self-humbling in all authentic evangelism. 
Without it, we contradict the gospel and we misrepresent the Christ we proclaim. God stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, came to meet us in our mess. This is the beauty of God's mission that we're called to share in. Jesus humbled himself, suffered, and endured a brutal death. But more than just that, in order to reach us, he became like us. He associated with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and others of ill repute. Jesus didn't stop there. He made friends with these people. And besides just making friends with them, he loved them. And this isn't speculation by me. This is scripture. It's documented in the Gospels. It's why I chose the scripture reading I chose on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Because Jesus didn't just stop at making them friends. He didn't just stop at loving them. But he served them. He served them in a way that clearly let them know he did not consider himself to be better than them. He served them in a way, really, especially in that culture, that was degrading. He degraded himself. And then, in that passage, we have this quote from Jesus, where he says, No servant is greater than his master. He's speaking directly to the disciples and to us today. And this is what he's saying. If I can humble myself as I did, surely you can. If I, Jesus, who has every right to declare I'm better than you, who has every right to declare I'm above you, if I did not do that, but in fact I considered myself more important, sorry, in fact I considered others more important than myself, surely you can do that too. Jesus set the example, and then he charged us to do the same thing. So when we want to help someone, or share with someone, let's check our actions against our attitudes. Where is our heart? Can we approach them with humility and emptiness? Can we meet them where they are? Can we join them in their mess? People do not need to clean themselves up before they come to God. I'm going to guess everybody agrees with that statement. But I think a lot of times as Christians, that's not how we make people feel. We make them feel like they do need to clean themselves up before they come to God or before they come to us, before they're worthy of our help. People do not need to clean themselves up before they come to God. But sometimes we make them feel that way. Instead, God wants us to do what he did. God wants us to model our lives after Jesus. He wants us to make friends with people. He wants us to grow to love those people. He then wants us to serve those people. People need friends. People need love. And people need help. All people. There's no one that's immune from that. So that first trip to Haiti didn't go too well, as I documented in just a few of the anecdotes. Didn't go well from my perspective, from a pride perspective. But I'll tell you that I made friends on that trip that I have to this day. 
People like Destin. I try to seek him out every single time I get back to Haiti to see him, and if I can, his family. People that I call friends, also people that I have grown to love. And people I've had the opportunity to serve. Now after that trip in 2008, Becca abandoned me, went to join Mercy Ships, which was a fantastic thing for her to do. But on her way out, she said, God told me you are going to lead the next trip next year to Haiti. I wasn't sure at the time she was right, but she was. I led a trip in 2009, and I haven't stopped leading trips there yet. And in 2013, which was many trips later, Carrie and I took the whole family to Haiti, which at the time was five kids. There were other people on that trip as well. And the Mission of Hope took us to Emmanuel Orphanage in Titanian. I met Yvonne and the kids of Emmanuel Orphanage for the first time. Yvonne told me that God had brought us there to help the orphanage, not just for that week, but in an ongoing relationship, and that we were going to be friends. I wasn't sure at the time Yvonne was right, but it turns out he was. The relationship with Emmanuel Orphanage grew each year, and it's allowed us even now to host Shabenta for her heart surgery at Boston Children's Hospital last fall. We thought the trip in 2013 was a one-week thing. God had long-term plans. We thought the heart surgery was a six-week obligation to host Shabenta. God has had other plans so far. Over the years, I've learned a lot. I've adjusted the way that I do things. I've adjusted the way that the teams do things. And I still have a lot to learn. People question why we go to Haiti. Wouldn't it be better to send $10,000 than have 10,000, I'm sorry, not 10,000 people. Wouldn't it be better to send $10,000 than to have 10 people spend a week in Haiti? And actually, in a lot of cases, wouldn't it be better to send $15,000 than to have 10 people spend a week in Haiti as the costs continue to rise to do these trips? I think the answer is that sending money is good. But visiting is important, too. Yvonne, his family, the workers, the kids, they need money. But they also need friends. They need love. They need to see people who have more than they have in a worldly sense, in a material sense. Put that aside. Meet them where they are. Join them in their situation and demonstrate that they are willing to call them friends, willing to love them, and willing to serve them. To do their best to humble themselves and empty themselves and say, I am not better than you. I am not above you. I love you and I'm here to serve you. And that's important. It's powerful. And I'll be honest, it's not necessarily just powerful for them. Each trip to Haiti changes the, the hearts of the people that go on it. And I'm speaking about Haiti because that's my experience. You can have the same experience in many places, including right here in our community. And helping somebody that's in need, when you do it with love, 
when you do it with an attitude that says, if it weren't for the grace of God, I could be you. I could be in that same position or worse. I'm not better than you. I'm not above you. I'm just here to help. I'm your friend. It changes not just them. It changes you. And if more people can do that, and the more people that do do that, I believe it will have impact on our communities, have impact on our regions, and have impact on the world. No matter who you are, you are not better than the person around you. You are not better than the person that's in need of physical or spiritual help. I don't care what they've done. I don't care what you've done. And I would go so far as to say you cannot truly carry out the mission of God until you're able to humble yourself and empty yourself. And to understand that we are all God's children and but for his grace would be in desperate need of many, many things. And we all share that same desperate need for a savior. To paraphrase John Stott again, there is a self-emptying and self-humbling in all authentic evangelism. Without it, we contradict the gospel and misrepresent the Christ we proclaim. Cornerstone seeks to have a well-rounded missions program that's diverse geographically, that focuses on spiritual and physical needs, is true to the nature of our missionary God. But more than that, we want the people of Cornerstone to be on mission for God. And we want them to be on mission for God in a well-rounded way too. So as you work to be on mission for God in each of the six ways outlined today, and perhaps others that you see in scripture as that list is not exhaustive. Henry Blackaby is famous for saying this, watch to see where God is working and join him. Although you can certainly be creative, you do not need to invent ways to help people. There are many great local, regional, national, and global organizations with whom you can partner. But really what I want you to do is focus on your own personal mission. What you're doing in your front line each and every day. I want to remind you of the six things that you can do if you're not already doing them in your front line. Number one, disciple someone or be discipled. Number two, tell someone about Jesus. Number three, pursue relationship with someone. Number four, help someone in need. Number five, do good. Don't avoid those opportunities when they come in front of you. And number six, praise God. Let's not rush through our lives forgetting that every good gift is from above. We can leave those on the screen for a couple seconds. We can think about those. A lot of times when people decide to try to do something new, no matter what it is. Certainly for me, it's true. You take on more than you should 
and you burn out. So I'm really looking for each of us, and I know what it is for me. Which one of these six things is missing most from your personal work being on mission for God? And can you do one thing that can become part of your regular, everyday life and then build from there? Please join me in a closing prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are a missionary God. We thank you that you've been on mission pursuing your people since the fall. That you pursue us. That it is not us who loved you first, but it's you who loved us first. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the model of the incarnation that Jesus would step down out of heaven to give up all of that beauty and glory and majesty and all of the rights and privileges and put them aside, set them aside to come and join us in our mess. Lord, we know that he experienced poverty and loneliness. We know that he was despised and rejected. We know that we have a high priest who can empathize with all the things we go through, who understands our struggles, who understands our troubles. And Lord, I pray that we would take on that incarnational model of evangelism, that we would meet people where they are, that we would join them in their mess. Certainly if it is not too much to ask for you to leave heaven, come to our aid. It is not too much to ask us to leave whatever we have to be of aid to someone else. Father, I pray that you would cement these things into our hearts, that we would not be able to push aside the prompting of your Holy Spirit. If there's a lost sheep that we should be trying to find, if there's someone we should be discipling, if there's someone we need to tell about Jesus, if there's someone that needs our friendship, a kind word, someone who needs to know we care about them, Lord, keep them on our mind and our heart. Don't let that leave us until we follow through. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.